Welcome to Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Lunt. Today, my guest is Dr. Christopher Mirage. Dr. Mirage is a practicing psychiatrist and medical director of both the Older Adult Program and the Consultation Liaison Service at Sharp Mesa Vista Hospital in beautiful San Diego. So, Chris, let's talk today about some of the unique challenges in treating depression in the elderly. Does depression increase the risk for future development of dementia? Statistically, you'll find that folks will be more at risk, yes, of dementia. I think that what we all find in practice, too, is folks who are depressed that are undertreated or untreated, they don't take care of themselves. And so their their other medical conditions will not get better or get worse. And we all heard about four or five months ago that folks who have high risk of vascular disease, cerebral vascular disease, also tend to be folks that have high risks of dementia, so diabetes, mm-hmm. high blood pressure, high cholesterol. So what order of magnitude of risk are we talking about? Especially for vulnerable folks with a family history of dementia, I'd say from my clinical experience, probably doubles your risk. What's the first step when you're doing an evaluation in an older patient? What kinds of things do you look for in diagnosing depression? Well, I want to always check with my patient, has this ever happened before in their younger life? And, you know, the immediate answer, most folks, if you don't dig any further, is, oh, no, no, I've never been this way before. Um, It helps to always have someone with that patient, either a spouse, a friend, a neighbor, or a child, a grandchild, who is responsible enough to tell you a timeline. I always first just ask, is this something that's ever happened before? Now, it may never have, but you're trying to destigmatize it, I guess, if you will, by, by telling them that this can happen later in life if it's ever happened before. And the other thing is also asking them what their biggest worry is. And they'll always ask, well, do I have dementia? Do I have Alzheimer's? Because they have trouble with memory. So you have to explore that. They'll say that they're not sleeping well. A lot of folks don't at that age. You have to ask, what kind of sleep trouble are they having? A lot of older adults will complain they wake up too early. That doesn't always mean depression. But you know, I always like to ask, how easy is it for you to go to sleep? Or how hard is it for you to stay awake? It's that initial insomnia that always sort of pops up. Trouble getting to sleep is what I mean by that. So those are sort of the first steps I take. One of the things that sometimes confuses me in evaluating sleep issues in the elderly is, what do you do if they go to bed so early? You know, if they're asleep by 8 o'clock at night, not surprising that they're up at 3 in the morning. And and often that doesn't mean it's pathology so much because the requirement for long stretches of sleep will not be as much as it used to be. And for a lot of retirees, their schedule isn't going to exhaust them quite as much as it did when they were younger. So their their sleep requirement can go down. If they're really worried about waking up too early, I'll ask them why. Is it that they are bored and lonely and that's why they're just sort of homebodies and staying in bed late at night? Maybe they can't drive at night, so there's not anywhere they could go anyway. I sort of ask them what, what it is about their sleep pattern, whatever that is, that bothers them the most and then try and go from there. How do you address the issue? So many times I've heard patients themselves and family members, other people in the community say, well, you know, if I were 90, I'd be depressed too, that your friends are dying, your health isn't as good, there may be not much to look forward to, you maybe don't have the self-esteem building from a career that you had. I mean, how do you address that? I think for a lot of folks who come to see me who are 60s and 70s and 80s and even 90s, 
you say sort of the same thing. I'll ask them, what is it that they still value? You know, is it, is it their family maybe? Or maybe they don't have a family. I try and find something that they, they still value. Some folks have a legitimate stake at saying, well, there's not much left for me. And you have to be, in that position, I'm, I'm troubled at sometimes because I have to be honest with them too and say, well, you know, your health is failing or your family's moved away. But we still have to find something that you value. There's still something there. And there usually is. It just it takes them sort of a handheld tour to find out what that is. Perhaps we shouldn't be so quick to just medicate people and actually talk to them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, go figure. I think that something that's under-prescribed but certainly very effective is just that, is talk therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy especially. The technique is usually studied in younger adults, but older adults tend to be very, very good responders. But unfortunately, again, it's, it's under-prescribed. A lot of folks will think, well... You know, older folks, they just don't like to talk about that. That's the generation that doesn't talk about things. We run a group over at our hospital, and we're usually pretty full. We've got some great responders in that group. So we shouldn't ignore therapy, but what about other kinds of interventions for the treatment of depression? You know, a lot of it is also making sure that their nutrition is intact. A lot of folks will, especially with depression anyway, the appetite can be disrupted. So anorexic reactions and a decreasing appetite to begin with because your metabolic needs are down. Poor nutrition is, is exceedingly common, and that can lead to other things, such as dysregulation of their sugars if they're diabetic, skin problems, skin breakdown if they're inactive, even memory problems. So nutrition is a big one. So I always try and, again, recruit someone in their life, a patient's life if I can, to make sure their nutrition is okay, make sure they always have food on hand. And the other thing then is, if they're still in the throes of, depression, that is not the time to talk about it, but eventually talk to someone when they're more euthymic about what their wishes are, what their end-of-life wishes are, especially for primary care docs. When you really know someone, you've known them for a long time, and you can tell that they're in a better state, it's a good conversation to have so that you don't, uh, you know, it sort of de, I guess, mystifies or maybe destigmatizes the conversation that everyone in their older years is thinking about. When we look at different therapeutic options, of course, medications are probably the most common thing that people are at least comfortable prescribing. How do you assess what medicine to use in in depression, especially in the elderly? The ones that we used to always avoid are the ones that we still avoid. The tricyclics, for instance. They have a lot of side effects, and a lot of those are constipation or lightheadedness or even rhythmia problems. The SSRIs are much more innocent in terms of their side effects, but not completely free because, again, a lot of times the dosages are one of two things. They're either underdosed, and so they're almost taking placebo, or they're overdosed in the sense that you have a lot of sedation at that high dose. So Prozac, for instance, at 60 milligrams, or Zoloft in an 80-year-old at 200 milligrams. You know, you start to run into many of the same problems, someone who's sedated, someone who's constipated, sort of dull. For me, what I do is with medications, I take the lowest dose. I usually start at a healthy young adult and cut it in half. For instance, Lexapro, instead of 10 milligrams, five. And uh, Paxil, which is tough because it's got a lot of anticholinergic side effects, but I'll still do it instead of 10, again, five, or instead of 20, maybe 10, and go and almost double the length of time when I increase. So it's sort of a rule of twos, I suppose, but I still get side effects for patients, but 
this tends to make my life a lot easier and certainly theirs, too. So do you have a favorite? It's a niche drug, but Remeron, for instance. Now, you have to be cautious, of course. Mirtazapine can cause a lot of sedation. It can cause a lot of weight gain in someone who doesn't need weight gain. But for folks who aren't sleeping very well with initial insomnia or someone who's got an anorexic reaction that's losing weight, I use it quite a bit more. I mean, I would say maybe three times more often in the older adult population than in my younger adult population. Mm -hmm. And how do you dose that? Well, you know, it's tricky because mirtazapine with low doses tends to be more sedating. So that's the only drug that sort of violates my own rules, which is I usually start at 15 for younger adults. I'll start at 30. Are the appetite-inducing effects, are those dose-related with mirtazapine? Not as much. They are a little bit, yeah. Not as much as the sedation, I find, but... Usually the higher doses tend to be less, less of a cause of appetite increase than the lower doses, but you'll still find it. And then how long do you treat before you make a change? Usually give it about six weeks. Now, that's a six to eight weeks, actually, so that's a long time. But, you know, again, it's taking me a, little, a while to titrate to the dose because I go slower. And I usually try and find a reason why I can't get someone into some type of cognitive behavioral therapy, whether that's a group setting or an individual setting. Because by six or eight weeks in that type of environment, I'll have a set of eyes looking at the patient. Another colleague of mine, a therapist, will be looking at the same patient. And by six or eight weeks, if someone's enrolled in therapy and the medicine's working, they're going to feel better. Not 100% better, but they're going to get better. And if by that time they're still flat or even worse, going backwards, then something needs to change. Now, what about the role of ECT, electroconvulsive therapy? We do that quite a bit, too. And I have, it's not a large part of my practice, but for patients of mine that aren't responders or most likely a long-term history of depression, ECT can work very, very well. It's the most reliable treatment out there in terms of its response rate for depression, upwards of 90-plus percent. It, It avoids the toxic side effects of medications, and you can use it while someone's on medicine, but you have to worry about its, its complications, and it's not a risk-free venture by any stretch. Uh, in California, what we do is, for voluntary patients, we always have a second opinion. We always have a medical clearance. We always have a video they watch and 24 hours' worth of consent time at the minimum. So a lot of folks will be very anxious about it. Again, you just you walk them through it, and it's a small percentage of folks that really need that ECT. I appreciate your help today. We've been speaking with Dr. Marash about the treatment of geriatric depression. Thank you very much, Chris, for joining us today. Thank you. My pleasure. Channel 233, the new home for medical professionals, ReachMDXM.